0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Banker Next Door. I am your host, Dr. Joe Berquist. Uh, today, we are back in the library. It's been a little while since we've been back in here. Uh, today, I'm going to start. This is part one of the long-teased and long-awaited book review for The Lords of Easy Money, and I really have cannot wait to get rolling on this one. Um, it took me a little while to kind of figure out how I was going to present this because there, this book is so... Monumental, And there's so much in this book and there's so much to go over. So I broke this down. This is going to come to you to everybody in multiple parts. And so today we're going to kick off the first one here and I'm going to bring in our cover. So we are doing the Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy. This book was published in 2000, uh, it's actually 2022, not uh, not 02, I should, that's one mistake there, but the, uh, the publisher here was Simon and & Schuster, and the author is Christopher Leonard, who is a, uh, I believe, a, an award-winning New York Times bestselling author, um, and this is, the page count of this book is basically 305 pages, but it is 305 pages of just jam-packed um, amazement from, from start to finish uh you know Christopher truly wrote uh, and just an absolutely amazing book and so what I'm going to cover here today uh we're basically going to get into the first chapter of the book here and what I did was I went through and broke this down so basically there are three parts to the book the uh, first part to the book basically breaks down into the following six chapters basically going below zero serious numbers the great inflation or inflation's fed speak the Overmighty citizen and the money bomb so today we're going to be going over chapter one which is going below zero so part one starts is called respectfully no and now we're going to get into so i want to give everybody a little bit of background here so we, we kind of start off the book here with the gentleman named thomas um honig and his is his name is spelled h-o E N I G, but it's pronounced Haw Nig. So Thomas Haw Nig, and he is a president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Kansas City going back to, we're going to now, we're going back to 2010. And he basically. Uh, served as the as the president of the Federal Reserve Bank for almost twenty years, basically from 1991 until 2010. And the book basically starts with the November meeting of the Federal Reserve Open Markets Committee, uh, which met in November of 2010, and that's kind of where the book uh, kicks off. And then and then we kind of follow through from there. So, and we talk a lot about here in in the beginning of the first chapter about who. Uh, Mr. Honig is like, what is his background? So basically, uh, Mr. Honig was an artillery man in Vietnam, so he's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, and then after the war, he came back. He studied economics and banking at Iowa State University, where he earned his PhD. And his first job, basically out of school after he graduated, got his PhD, he started as an economist with the Federal Reserve Bank at the Kansas City branch there. And, but, and this is key. He started out working in the supervision department. So he, so basically he was supervising um, the regulation of, of banks in his particular area, you know, in and around uh, the Kansas city market. And uh, so each federal reserve branch basically there's 12 branches of the federal reserve around the country and each one is responsible for their specific area so and and they're responsible for the supervision of the banks in said area so he was mainly on that supervisory side just kind of monitoring banks uh, monitoring what they do he went through a number of uh you know boom and bust cycles a number of banking crises so he saw a, a lot of things in his time there at the fed so he basically works his way up and 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 as he rose through the ranks he'd be like i said he became president in 1991. so in in 2010 uh his votes were basically no 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 and no and so he became what was known as a dissenter um you know for for basically issuing his dissenting votes um and we'll get into this a little bit more but what i would tell people is like if i just did an episode. On the Federal Reserve a few weeks ago and the lack of dissension in the Fed, the lack of dissenting votes that we have seen and how this pattern has built a lot over the last, you know, 15, you know, 20, 15, 20 years. So I would I would highly recommend everybody go back and, and watch that video because that that does play in big to what we're about to go over here. So and, and just to kind of wrap up, I mean, I mean, Mr. Mr. Honig was a he's a very soft spoken man. Um, he's, he's not a, he's not a, a highly political person. He's not a person with a fiery disposition as he's, as it would be described in the book. Um, he's just kind of a, I think he's a, kind of an easygoing guy. highly intelligent, the deep thinker, um, you know, somebody who the kind of personality you would expect of somebody who's an economist, who's a banker, who's a regulator, who works the Federal Reserve and spends his whole days, you know, thinking about money and how monetary policy affects everybody in, in everyday life. So, um, so I just want to uh, read this uh, this little clip here for everybody, and, and I'm going to read a lot through the book as, we, as excerpts as we kind of go through here. So uh, the Federal Reserve is unlike any other in the world. It is a crazy genetic mashup of different animals, part private bank and part government agency. People talk about the Fed as if it were a bank, but it is really a network of regional banks, all controlled by a central office in Washington, D.C., Honig had all the fiery disposition that one might expect from a regional, a regional Fed president, which is to say none at all. And that, that was kind of gets to back to the point of what I was saying there. So, um, okay, so let's move along here. Uh, okay, so now I want to read an excerpt from everybody. And this is kind of our our opening salvo, if you will. And this is, and, 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 and again, this is kind of crazy here. I think what I find fascinating about this book is that every thing that builds, it gets, the the one thing is crazier than the next, crazier than the next. So between 1913, the year that the Fed was founded, and 2008, the Fed gradually increased the money supply from about $5 billion to $847 billion. This increase in the monetary base happened slowly in a gently uprising slope over the course of nine, basically 95 years. Then between late 2008 and early 2010, the Fed printed $1.2 trillion. It printed a 100 years worth of money, in other words, in a little over a year, more than doubling what economists call the monetary base. There was one very important characteristic of all this new money. The Fed can create currency in just one way. It makes new dollars and deposits them in the vaults of big banks. Only about 24 special banks, the prime banks, prime money banks, and financial institutions have the privilege of getting these pristine dollars, making those banks the seabed of the money supply. The amount of excess money in the banking system swelled from 200 billion in 2008 to 1.2 trillion in 2010, an increase of 52,000%. Now it's hard to it's hard to absorb that information. It's hard to truly understand. They printed a hundred years worth of money in two years. That's what they did to get to try to save us from the financial crisis. Um, so now let's get into so what are the basics of the Federal Reserve system? So the basic system works like this. When the Fed raises interest rates, it slows the economy. When the Fed lowers interest rates, it speeds up the economy. But one of the most important things the Fed did during the global financial crisis was to slash the interest rate to zero, essentially for the first time in history. Rates had briefly flirted with zero in the early 1960s. Economists called the 0% interest rate the zero bound. And it was once seen as some kind of inviolable boundary. You know, you couldn't go below zero, it was believed. Uh, People in Europe would beg to differ on that. The, uh, The rate of interest is really just the price of money. When interest rates are high, money is expensive because you have to pay more to borrow it. When rates are low, money is cheap. When rates are zero, money is effectively free for the banks who can get it straight from the Fed. The cost of money can't get lower than zero, economists believe. So the zero bound reflects the limits of the Federal Reserve power to control interest rates. The Fed hit zero bound shortly after Lehman Brothers collapsed. But the more important thing is what happened next. After hitting zero, the Fed didn't try to lift rates again. The Fed even started telling everyone very clearly that it wasn't going to lift the rates. This gave the banks confidence to keep lending in a free money environment. The banks knew that life at the zero bound was going to last for a while. Um, So that's a lot to take in there so in other words what the fed was doing during and after the financial crisis was unprecedented this had never happened before the fleet, the rates had flirted with zero for like five seconds back in the 1960s and and that was it here we're talking about okay we've made the rates zero starting in 2008 and we're going to keep them at zero for a long time um while they're pumping money. So in other words, what they just said is it, when you decrease rates, that lifts the economy. The problem was that the rates being at zero wasn't lifting the economy. And they're, and, they're, and the Fed was going, well, what are we, what are we doing about this? We got we to gotta figure something out here. Um, the experimental program had, like all things at the modern Fed, a name that was intentionally opaque and therefore difficult for people to understand, let alone care about. The plan was called quantitative easing. If the program was enacted, it would reshape the American financial system. It would redefine the Federal Reserve's role in economic affairs, and it would make all the things that Honig had been voting against look quaint. He was planning to vote against quantitative easing, and his dissent was going to be a lonely one. So... Now I want to get into a little bit about a little history here. So we're going to enter in a little history here. So William Jennings Bryant, and basically this is going back to a presidential election in 1896. So there was a reason the politics of money was so heated back in Bryan's day. The Federal Reserve hadn't yet been created. Managing the money supply was still in the public realm of democratic action. All of that ended when the Fed was founded in 1913. Power to control the money supply then belonged exclusively to the Fed, which then consolidated the power under the FOMC, which then debated behind closed doors. A big wall went up around the decision-making on money. So, Yes, it's very important to know that, you know, when the Federal Reserve was first founded and and I'll point to uh, this was particularly key during like the Great Depression. So when the Federal Reserve was founded, like they didn't do any press conferences. It was nothing like today where you get, you know, Powell and Yellen and Bernanke and all these people um, coming out and talking to us routinely and trying to give, you know, forward guidance and trying to explain like what's going on. We didn't have the dot plot. We didn't have the beige book. We didn't get fed minutes. We did. We couldn't go back and look at the records. I mean, there was zip. There was bupkis. There was nothing that came out of the Federal Reserve. Um, Basically, they would probably give some comments to to some uh, journalists with the Wall Street Journal, which would get printed in there. But that that was basically all you got. Um, So it was a very different atmosphere in the way that the Fed operated back then. So the FOMC debates were technical and complicated, but their their core, they were about choosing winners and losers in the economic system. Haunig was fighting against quantitative easing because he knew that it would create historically huge amounts of money. And this money would be delivered first to the big banks on Wall Street. He believed that this money would widen the gap between the very rich and everybody else. It would benefit a very small group of people who owned assets and it would punish the very large group of people who lived on paychecks and tried to save money. Just as important, this tidal wave of money would encourage every entity on Wall Street to adopt riskier and riskier behavior in a world of cheap debt and heavy lending, potentially creating exactly the kind of ruinous financial bubble that had caused the global financial crisis in the first place. So again, Honing has his dissenting view and he votes against quantitative easing. So again, like why? Well, there, there it is. And as it turned out, Honig was almost entirely correct in his concerns and his predictions. Perhaps no single government policy did more to reshape American economic life than the policy that the Fed began to execute on that November day. And no single policy did more to widen the divide between the rich and the poor. Understanding what the Fed did in November 2010 is the key to understanding the very strange economic decade that followed when asset prices soared, the stock market boomed, and the American middle class fell further behind um so this is i mean this is just a monumental thing that happened here in november of 2010 when they basically said we're going to institute the zerp the zero interest rate policy and we are going to now print money through quantitative easing and just pump that money into the economy they widened the gap between the rich and the poor they 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 exasperated this they also forced everybody on wall street to, to go out on what's called going out on the curve, seeking yield. And we'll, we'll get more into that in, in just a minute here. So, um, so again, like, you know, uh, so basically Honig's dissenting views were hurting the FOMC. They did not like him being out there, having these dissenting views in public And so, but the question is, you know, again, what were his, what were his thoughts on this? So, so there were two reasons why Honig's dissents were causing so much tension. The first had to do with the way the Fed was run. So consensus and unanimous votes had become all important inside the FOMC. The world needed to have faith that the Fed leaders knew what they were doing and that what they were doing was something much more like math than like politics. The mighty brains who ruled the FOMC were portrayed to the public as PhD educated civil servants who were essentially solving complex equations rather than making policy choices. When an FOMC member dissented, it shattered this illusion. It pointed out that there might be competing points of view, even heated debate about what path forward the Fed ought to take. Unanimous votes helped the FOMC keep its power by essentially denying that it had power. It was just a group of smart engineers operating the power plant according to the rule manual. The second reason Honig's dissents caused so much tension was tightly linked to the first consensus was ever more important at the FLMC because the decisions it was making were more consequential. America's democratic institutions were increasingly paralyzed, which left more work to be done by its non-democratic institutions like the Supreme Court and the Federal Reserve. So, you basically had a, a time of crisis. The Fed wants to, to be seen as being unified, as having this unifying consensus among all its members. And they were basically going in, doing the analysis, and then coming out with this consensus vote. Everybody agreed on it. You know, uh, Everybody agreed that this was the best course of action. And again, go go back, like I said, go back to the other episodes that I just did uh, talking about this and how basically since this period, since Honig, Basically, came out publicly and and dissented in his view. I mean, you really haven't had in the last fifteen years anyone else that has done this at the Fed. Nobody has has dissented. Nobody has come out with a a a different view or a different opinion on on what's going on here. So, um, now um, here are some interesting comments in the lead up to the financial crisis in two thousand and eight, and kind of the author's comments here. So. The global financial crisis of 2008 didn't come out of nowhere. The collapse came after many long years of decay inside the economic system that had stopped working for majority Americans. The problems were varied and complex. And they all helped create the conditions for the crisis with indebted workers, powerful banks extending risky loans, and wildly overvalued market prices. People were borrowing more money in part because the decline of labor unions had taken away the bargaining power of workers, depressing their wages and degrading their working conditions. Trade deals shifted jobs overseas as new technology meant that fewer workers were wanted. An aging population relied more and more heavily on underfunded government programs like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, creating huge levels of government debt. The education system was falling behind that of peer nations. Years of deregulation meant that the banking system was dominated by a few titanic firms that specialized in making and selling OPEC and risky debt instruments. These were huge challenges facing the nation and the federal government had not substantially addressed any of them. There were conservative ways to deal with these problems and there were liberal ways to deal with these problems. But with the election of the Tea Party, Congress was not going to deal with the problems at all. So the author makes a lot of really interesting comments there. Uh, do I necessarily agree with these comments? In other words, it's not necessarily what he's saying is wrong. Um, I just think that, um, I, I I'll put I'll put it this way. Uh, this author is is he's um he's obviously Democrat, and throughout the book, you can see a little of his kind of liberal democratic biases leaning through in some of the comments and things that he makes. Um, and I would say I would say it this way. not that what he's saying is untrue is just he's not really pointing to the big facts. like he doesn't want to point out that it was the the Clinton administration that in the late 1990s basically basically d, de- uh, I don't know if de- would say deregulated, They changed a lot of the mortgage laws. They wanted to make it easier for people to buy houses. And then in 1999, the Glass-Steagall Act was repealed again under Clinton's watch. Uh, Larry, you know, Larry Sumners was very instrumental in that, um, along with Robert Rubens. and they, they, you know, they wanted to, you know, turn Citibank into this giant conglomerate. And and the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act removed that barrier between commercial banks and investment banks, and allowed. These banks to to truly become uh, financial behemoths, and then of course in the early 2000s we had a lot of deregulation, and then you had the dot com bubble bursting, Um, and then you had uh, Greenspan reducing interest rates and then keeping them down too long, and this this created all this kind of perfect stew. And the problem is is that he doesn't you know he doesn't really point that out here in this. He he just kind of you know he's kind of blaming it on labor unions and uh, oh you know you know, the, 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 oh, people just took on too much debt and, you know, and, you know, depressed wages and things like that. Yeah. I mean, again, like that, that, that stuff is not unnecessarily true, but it doesn't really get to the heart of, of what really happened there in the setup of why the, the financial crisis, you know, exploded and, and why it happened. Um, so, uh, let's so let's move on now to Honig's vote record and some of his comments here. So um, and so it was it was at this historical moment that Thomas Honig decided to embark on his string of dissents among the longest of any FOMC member in history. Honig dissented so frequently that it seemed like he enjoyed it. A columnist at the Wall Street Journal wrote a regular column called The Lone Dissenter, in which he interviewed Honig after each no vote. Um, Honig wasn't just undermining the image of a consensus-driven Fed. He was helping draw attention to the fact. This echoed loudly inside the cloistered world of the FOMC members who spoke often and who traveled to the same conferences and award ceremonies uh Honig had been well liked in that world but now his peers talked to him with unease they asked if he was sure he needed to do what he was doing the relationship between Honig and chairman Bernanke, though never close was now adversarial years later when Bernanke wrote his memoir the book included relatively few mean-spirited comments and many of them were reserved for Honig. Bernanke painted Haunting as disloyal, obstinate, and maybe even a little unbalanced. So let's continue moving on here. So Hawks and Doves in the Fed and Andrew Mellon and the Mellonists. Uh, So basically... um, Politics in the Fed were scrambled and didn't make a lot of sense within this broader framework. The basic tension within the Fed was described with language that had been borrowed from the world of foreign policy, uh, using the terminology of hawks and doves. In foreign policy, it was the hawks who advocated for aggressive military intervention, and it was the doves who pushed against aggressive intervention by supporting diplomacy. Curiously, These terms were reversed when applied to the Fed. It was the doves inside the Fed who argued for more aggressive intervention, and it was the hawks who tried to limit the Fed's reach. The debate between hawks and doves at the Fed was usually talked about in terms of inflation, that dangerous state of affairs where prices rise quickly and the value of a currency falls. If the Fed is seen as a team of nuclear engineers who supervise economic growth, then inflation is seen as the meltdown to be avoided at all costs. The last time inflation hit America was in the 1970s, and it was remembered as a chaotic time when prices for everything from meat to gasoline to houses were rising uncontrollably. Huh. Sounds interesting. Sounds like something we're experiencing today. Central banks cause inflation when they keep interest rates too low for too long. Huh. Huh. Central banks cause inflation when they keep interest rates low too long. Too low for too long. Hmm. Hawks hated inflation and therefore wanted to keep interest rates higher and limit the Fed's reach. Doves were less afraid of inflation, therefore more willing to print lots of money. Needless to say, among the public, the doves got better press. Who could take issue with a dove? The theory seemed to be that doves were compassionate and wanted to help the economy and working people, while hawks were were harsh and severe and wanted to stop the fed from helping people very 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 interesting there so now uh we're going to talk about the melanist for a second so haunting's actions during 2010 had turned him into the fomc's ultra hawk in economic terms he was seen as a type of prehistoric brute something economists called a melanist A term that refers to Andrew Mellon, who was secretary of the treasury when the depression began. There aren't many actual villains in the world of economics, but Mellon is one of them. Mellon is famous for one thing, being heartless and delusional. His reputation came from a single piece of advice that he gave President Herbert Hoover as the markets collapsed in 1929. Mellon told Hoover to let the fire burn, let the people go broke. He believed the crash was a type of moral cleansing that was necessary to clear the way for a better economy in the future. Liquidate labor, liquidate stocks, liquidate the farmers, liquidate real estate, Mellon is reported to have told Hoover. The reason this advice was delusional as well as heartless was that Mellon's economic theory was mistaken. It wasn't cleansing to liquidate the farmers and the stocks. The liquidation created a downward cycle of unemployment, weak spending, and slow growth that only grew harder to reverse the longer it lasted. By urging Hoover to liquidate so much value, Mellon liquidated years of future economic growth. So now Honig, as this extreme hawk, the Mellonist, he was out of step with the times. This was, in fact, the reputation that solidified around Thomas Honig over time. Years after his string of dissents, a liberal financial reporter in New York, when asked about Honig, immediately responded, yeah, he's a crank. Around the same time at a cocktail party in Washington, D.C., an economist with the American Enterprise Institute, the conservative think tank, immediately said about Honig, he was wrong. Honig's concerns were universally remembered as as being concerns over inflation, concerns that proved to be unwarranted because inflation never arrived. Over the years, the story about Honig became that of a misplaced Old Testament figure who had somehow wandered into the modern economic landscape, clinging to outdated scripture and frantically warning about inflation, more inflation, and even hyperinflation. So, I think it's quite fascinating, you know, what can kind of happen when you know you kind of step out of bounds at the Federal Reserve. And and again, and this was on display for for everybody to see. And and it was and in the last, you know, 15 or so years, it's been on more display because now people really look at it like, hey, you know, what's going on there? What, you know, you know, if I if I have a few if I'm looking at a career at the Fed and I want to move up, um, I better not be a dissenter, otherwise, you know, I'm I'm toast. So um so we're so we're gonna we're gonna kind of we're gonna kind of stop this video and wrap it up right here for right now. Um, I'm gonna come back to you in short order with part two so we can kind of wrap up the first chapter here of this and uh, and definitely continue on with our adventure here but um, but yeah I mean understanding this book is this is the key to kind of understanding everything that's going on right now. if you truly understand, what the Fed did and how that affected the economy, how that really remade the American economy and turned everything that we knew on its head, literally, Um, you will understand what's going on today. And that's why this book is so, so powerful. So I hope everyone's enjoying this so far. And like I said, I'll be back real short here in short order for part two, and I will be back real quick. All right. See everybody again soon.